Once again, they were close, but something had to change. Howdy, you're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Alpstrom. The 1970s closed out a great season for the Houston Astros in 1979. They finished only one and a half games behind the pennant-winning Reds and ended the decade on the brink of greatness. Would the Astros finally get over that hump and become the dominant team that they'd come close to being since the 1960s? Join us today on Come and Take It, and let's find out as we talk about Astros Part 2, the 1980s. But first, what's your favorite Major League Ballpark giveaway swag in a Texas ballpark? Um, well, I kind of like the bobbleheads these days. Uh, not that I have any because I don't go to baseball games that often. But my all-time favorite is probably the uh, the old-school Astros pennant that I have uh, from the good old days. I'm not sure if it's from the 70s or the 80s, but uh, it's pretty cool. It's got the old logo on it and everything. I like it. Well, um, yeah, I also don't know that I've ever actually gotten a giveaway. I've only been to a handful of professional baseball games, both major and minor. But I have heard tales of the famous nickel beer night and the uh, fracas that followed. Well, I take perverse pleasure in those old bat day giveaways back in the 80s in the old Arlington Stadium. Uh, We went to a couple of games when I was a kid with my dad and grandfather. And while it drove them insane, the sound of several thousand tiny wooden bats, which were about a foot long, banging away incessantly on those old aluminum stands, for three to four hours was both mind-numbing and unnerving. Not that it really I, I helped. I would imagine so. <laughs> yeah, not that it really helped the uh, the Rangers before Nolan Ryan showed up, but it was it was pretty 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 yeah. But it's awesome at the same time. Yeah, it's called Thunderdome. <laughs> 1980 was the year that the Ryan Express pulled into Houston. Signed in the 1979 offseason as a free agent. Nolan Ryan received the first million-dollar-a-year contract in Major League Baseball history. A native of Alvin, Texas, Ryan had spent the 60s and 70s racking up impressive stats and a reputation for throwing heat. He had been drafted at 19 by the Mets in 1968, winning a World Series with them in 1969. He was traded to the California Angels in 1972, where he really exploded. In his eight seasons with the Angels, Ryan won 138 games, struck out 2,416 batters, and made the All-Star team five times. He also threw four no-hitters in that time span, tying Sandy Koufax's record. Now, seasoned with a decade in the majors, he was coming home to the team he'd listened to on the radio as a kid, back when they were the Colt 45s. In addition to Nolan Ryan's 100-mile-per-hour fastballs, the 1980s Astros roster included several more impressive arms. Joe Necro had found his knuckleball to great effect, and J.R. Richard, with his impressive six-foot-eight-inch stature, was still on the team. He could actually drop the ball in front of the batter, that that type of frame. <laughs> Their quote-unquote weak pitcher that batters were relieved to face was Ken Forsh, who had double-digit wins in his previous two seasons. Uh, now, one of those wins was a no-hitter against the Atlanta Braves in 79. I think the 79 team had... Uh, uh, Willie Mays on that team. Uh, so to pitch a no-hitter against Willie Mays is pretty awesome. 
This arsenal combined with a respectable lineup that included the newly returned Joe Morgan himself. Morgan was fresh from a tremendous run with the big red machine of the Cincinnati Reds. It also included Jose Cruz, Terry Poole, Art Howe, and Al Ashby, among others. Now, all these names would be remembered for years and would dominate the Astros roster for a decade or more. The beginning of the 1980 season went well. J.R. Richards started with four straight wins. Nolan Ryan started his season with a three-run homer on April 12th, uh, which he's a pitcher, so that's pretty awesome. Uh, He produced half of the six RBIs he'd get that year. Joe Necro was on pace for his second consecutive 20-win season, the first Astros pitcher to achieve that feat. And it looked like things were finally going to break their way. Cruising into the middle of the season in 1980, J.R. Richard had been chosen to start in the All-Star game, boasting a 10-win, 4-loss record with 115 strikeouts and a 1.98 ERA. He only pitched two innings in that game, however, due to shoulder and back issues. Now, actually, Richard had been complaining of a dead arm and shoulder discomfort progressively more frequently through the season, but the media had dismissed his complaints as moodiness, something he had a reputation for, or jealousy over Nolan Ryan's contract. Perhaps in those days, before the ubiquity of our modern MRIs and other medical scans, uh, there's no, there wasn't really a way to know for sure what was going on. On July 14th, J.R. Richard was pitching well against the Braves when he left in the fourth inning. He was having trouble seeing catcher Alan Ashby's signs, and his right arm went numb enough that he couldn't even hold a baseball. He was put on the 21-day disabled list, and although the doctors discovered a blood clot in his arm, it was determined that no surgical treatment was necessary. While participating in warm-ups before the game on July 30, 1980, Richard collapsed. He suffered a major stroke and underwent emergency life-saving surgery. He'd never pitch again in the major leagues. So having lost their ace, the Astros struggled offensively and fought to stay contenders in the National League West. They slipped to third place behind the Dodgers and the Reds, but they fought back to the top with a 10-game streak and then fell back to two games behind the Dodgers when they met again on September 9th. Two wins later, and the Astros had tied for first place. The teams met again for the last three games of the season, this time with Houston ahead by three games. All they had to do was not lose all three games. However... They did lose the last three games, and they were forced into a one-game playoff for the division. The Astros handled the ball to Nucky Joe Necro and his knuckleball. He only allowed six hits, and the Astros won the game 7-1, to one, cruising to their first playoff appearance in history with a franchise-best 93-70 record for the regular season. Since it was a one-game playoff after the official end of the baseball season, the Astros had to get on an overnight cross-country flight to Philadelphia for the National League Championship Series against the Philadelphia Phillies. It turned into a hard-fought back-and-forth series, but in the do-or-die fifth game, Philadelphia came out ahead in the 10th inning to bring the Houston's first postseason to an end. The Phillies went on to beat the Kansas City Royals in the World Series, and the way that that championship series was played, a lot of people agreed that the Astros could have beaten the Royals too. So either way that series had turned out, Uh, the National League seemed to be destined to win that series. The 1981 season was interrupted by a player strike from June to August, which ended up working in the Astros' favor. The truncated season ended with a five-game playoff between the winners of the first half and the second half of the division title, and the Astros were in it for winning the second half. Unfortunately, the Dodgers edged them out for the division title and another trip to the NLCS. 
1981 was also the year that Nolan Ryan pitched his fifth no-hitter, shutting out the Dodgers to surpass Sandy Koufax for the most no-hitters in Major League Baseball. And I um, was told by my dad earlier today that he still has that game somewhere on uh, VHS tape. From 1982 to 1985, the Astros made some moves to try to remain contenders. In 82, only three pitchers and four position players remained from the 1980 team, and they were eliminated from the pennant race by August, so they began rebuilding. Manager Bill Verdon was fired and replaced by Bob Lillis, who had been a member of the original Colt 45 team. Pitcher Don Sutton also asked to be traded and was swapped with the Milwaukee Brewers for some cash and several new prospects, including Kevin Bass, and also probably some mustache polish for Raleigh Finger's mustache. (laughs) Bass would go on to be a key member of the Houston team in years to come. The Astros finished in fourth place in that division that season, but new talent like Bass and minor league call-up Bill Doran was on the deck. Some notable roster moves that would turn out to be important happened in this period. In the 1983 offseason, for example, the Astros traded outfielder Danny Heap to the New York Mets in exchange for a struggling 28-year-old pitcher named Mike Scott. Art Howe set out the entire season due to injury, shifting the infield around such that Bill Doran was put at second base. He'd stay at that position for seven seasons. In September of 1984, they called up rookie Glenn Davis, who had success in AAA. Davis would go on to be a tremendous contributor to the Astros in the following years. 1985 was the year that Mike Scott found another pitch, the split-fingered fastball, and Glenn Davis earned his place in the starting lineup at first base. In September of that year, Joe Necro was traded to the Yankees for two minor league pitchers and left-handed hurler Jim Deshays, who contributed to the Astros both on the field and later the broadcast booth. The Astros came in third in the division for the 1983 season, second in the 84 season, and fourth in 1985. Once again, they were close, but something had to change. And things did change for the Astros in 1986. They fired their manager and general manager, replacing them with Dick Wagner and Hal Lanier, respectively. Wagner had been in charge of the 1979 Reds that had beaten the Astros for the division, and Lanier was a protege of future Hall of Fame St. Louis manager Whitey Herzog. Lanier was a proponent of what was called Whitey Ball, favoring pitching, defense, and speed over home runs to win games. This style of play took advantage of artificial turp and deep fences, which just happened to fit the Astronome. Fans had been accustomed to slow starts from their hometown team, but with Lanier in charge, they got off to a blazing hot start with 13 wins to start the 1986 season. The Astros picked up Billy Hatcher, an outfielder, in a trade with the Cubs. Lanier went with a three-man rotation that kept his starters, Ryan Scott and Bob Nepper, sharp, and he put his talent in the infield to work, rotating the left side to take advantage of matchups for pitching. The Astrodome hosted the All-Star Game in 1986, and four Astros were representing the home field, including Mike Scott, Glenn Davis, and Kevin Bass. The Astros had slipped to second place at the break, but afterwards kept their momentum. There was a streak of five wins that put them back in first place, and then they swept the Giants in a key three-game series in September that gave them the Western Division title. Mike Scott took the mound for the final game and pitched a no-hitter. This is the only time in Major League Baseball history that a division title has been clinched by a no-hitter. Happened? The Houston Astros. 
Scott went on to win the National League Cy Young Award, which is given to the best pitcher in each league, for those of you who aren't sports ball fans, and with a 18-10 and 10 record. This historic occasion set the stage for one of the best postseason contests in Major League history. Matched against the New York Mets for the National League pennant, the Astros battled back and forth to get them one game behind in Game 6. They needed a win to get Mike Scott back on the mound for Game 7. Nobody wanted to face Mike Scott uh, at the time. He was really hot, so they wanted to get him out there because they felt they could guarantee that win. They started with a 3 to nothing lead, and nobody scored again for most of the game. Then Bob Nepper gave up two runs in the ninth, and the Astros brought in closer Dave Smith to finish it out. Now, it turns out that Smith had given up a dramatic home run in Game 3 to give the Mets the win. Smith ended up walking two and then gave up the tying run on a sacrifice fly. He managed to get out of the ninth without further damage, but the Mets had tied it up. This set up the longest postseason game in Major League Baseball history at the time. There were no more runs until the 14th inning when the Mets scored on a hit and an error off of third baseman Billy Hatcher. In the bottom of the 14th, however, Hatcher gained that run back in spectacular form by hitting a home run off the left field foul pole. In the 16th, Darryl Strawberry led off with a double for the Mets, then was brought in for a run by the next batter. The Mets ran up a seemingly insurmountable 7-4 lead, but the Astros rallied to come back 7-6. Kevin Bass was up to bat with the tying and winning runs on base, but he struck out. The Mets had won the series 4-2. When asked about that series, Bill Doran said, quote, You don't get a chance to be involved with something like that very often. There are guys who go through their whole career and never get that opportunity. People will ask now and I'll say, I would rather have been involved in it and come up short than not been involved at all. It was quite a ride. It really was. The Houston Astros seem to have made it a habit of soaring high to near greatness and falling just short in the most dramatic way possible. It's a pattern they'd continue to experiment with in the years to come. More dramatic changes to the team followed with beloved heroes moving on. Nolan Ryan, amidst a contract dispute with the team ownership, left for the Texas Rangers in Arlington. Jose Cruz was traded to the New York Yankees and retired after one season there. The Astros officially started rebuilding, and sadly in 1986, the famed Tequila Sunrise uniforms migrated to their shoulders of their uniforms rather than being the whole jersey. That's yes, to me the, the rain. Loss. The rainbow uniform was officially retired. They'd already introduced an alternate, and uh, mm-hmm. it was completely phased out in that time period. Yeah, it makes me sad. Now there was hope on the horizon. Astros legend uh, Craig Biggio debuted in 1988, joining other new prospects Ken Caminetti and Gerald Young. By 1990, Biggio was the team's everyday catcher, and he ended up playing with Houston for more than 20 years. In one of the most head-scratching trades in Major League history, the Astros acquired prospect Jeff Bagwell, a first baseman and slugger, from the Boston Red Sox in exchange for reliever Larry Anderson. This would turn out to be one of the biggest moves in Astros history and set them up for a lot of success. And a lot of reporters and fans were scratching their heads over that one. We'll talk about that one more another time. At the very end of the decade, slugger Glenn Davis was traded to the Baltimore Orioles for pitchers Kurt Schilling, Pete Hamish, and Steve Finley. So the 90s would bring more change for the Astros, Mm -hmm. both good and bad, but that's a tale for another day. So the 1980s Astros for me is mostly the Astros that I remember growing up. 
Um, I, I may have been to some games during the 70s. Uh, I don't see why I wouldn't have. But uh, I mostly remember the 80s and the players that were on the team in that time period. I mean, all of these names, uh, you know, of course, Nolan Ryan, J.R. Richard, uh, Terry Poole, Alan Ashby, um, you know, uh, Bill Doran, uh, Glenn Davis. I mean, these are the guys that I remember going to see and play. Um, one thing that we didn't mention that was dramatic in uh, 1980 was uh, third baseman Art Howe was uh, nailed in the face by a, a pitch uh, that broke his jaw. Um, I remember watching that on TV, and that was that was heart-wrenching to watch that happen. Um, would not wish that on anyone. If you're in Texas, you're clearly aligned to one of two baseball teams. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of Astros fans out there. And there's certainly a lot of people that, you know, really just remember this this rocking time of the eighties. And I mean, what an incredible insane game that must have been to see just to dragging on and on and on in the 1980s, you know, or for actually for most of the, the life cycle, the lifespan of the Astros, uh, and of the Texas Rangers. Yeah. We were Rangers fans because we lived in North Texas, but, uh, the, the teams were in different leagues. The Rangers were in the American league and the Astros were in, uh, the National League, and there was not interleague play until the 1990s. So the only prospect of there ever being an I-45 series was when, if both teams got to the World Series. And given how bad the Rangers were, that wasn't going to happen. And the Astros were one the ones that actually got a pennant first. Rangers never even won a pennant uh, until the 1990s. So uh, the Astros were, were always considered, at least in the 80s, I think, the much better team until uh, really until Nolan Ryan moved up to the Rangers and, and then the Rangers suddenly got really, really good, uh, very good. And then really good in the early nineties. So, um, you know, but we always saw the, you know, in the early eighties, the Astros, they were the better team. They, they had the better pitching. They had, uh, they, they did better. They performed better. Uh, and, uh, uh, to me, you know, not not watch being able to watch the Astros very much on television. I think I remember that Mets game because it was a championship game and it lasted so long. And I think my dad stayed up for it, uh, but I certainly didn't. And uh, yep. I, I just remember Nolan Ryan and the uniforms. Those were the things that I would always remember about the Astros. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I definitely I don't think I remember the uh, the 1980 season, but I do definitely remember that uh, that game against the Phillies in '86 and what a big deal that was and how close they came and uh, how long that game was. I don't remember if I stayed up for the whole thing, but uh, I do definitely remember that that happening. Um, you know, I've got a I could go on and on telling stories about uh, my childhood with the Astros, but. Um, one of my favorite stories is one that uh, my dad has has mentioned several times in the past, and uh, I remember. Well, he remembers. I I don't remember it, but he he says that we were at a game in the Astrodome, and uh, J.R. Richard had come up to bat. Um, again, they were in the National League, so the pitchers got to bat, and uh, I told my dad, I was like, he's going to hit a home run, and my dad thought it was funny because you know he's the pitcher and. Rarely do they get hits, much less home runs. Um, but sure enough, he did. Um, so that's a, a nice anecdote that I can always remember uh, being told. <laughs> um, I like to say that I'd like to say that that was the 1980 season because uh, looking at their stats, uh, he only had one 
he had one home run that season, and uh, it'd be fun if that was that was the one. Um, also, somewhere in the '80s, um, I, I lost my dad's binoculars in the Astrodome. Uh, left them hanging on the uh, the toilet paper dispenser in the restroom. So that was a fun time. I bet you got in trouble for that. Uh, I think it uh, went over better than I thought it would, because um, <laughs> it wasn't just me. It was me, my brother, and my cousin. We were all responsible for them. So, but yeah, I'll always remember that. That's uh that's right up there with the uh, the day that I broke my dad's uh, Peggy Sue forty five as uh, wonderful Ooh. childhood memories. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a funny thing about the eighties specifically. There's a weird bit of fun nostalgia people have, but they also like like oh I remember like Night Rider and the A Team and it was so great and E T was in theaters <laughs> and like yeah. We also lived under a constant threat of nuclear aggression, and the Berlin Wall was still a thing. Well, so I don't know about you guys. And the Astros didn't win a championship. The, yeah, I will always remember the 80s through a uh, orange and brown rainbow haze. The, those are yeah, the 80s that I remember. But yes, uh, that pattern of coming close to to uh, success uh, you know some success but falling short of uh, greater success that was a up and down pattern that the Astros would continue for for a long time and uh, we will talk more about them later yes we will to be continued my friends that wraps up things for today you can find notes and links from today's show at brainstable.com. We'd love to hear from you, so like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or get yourself to brainstable.com and leave some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. And why not follow us individually, too? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I'm Max Sean with two ends. And I'm Scotticus. You like this show, you like the Astros and Texas baseball, so tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you. If you'd like to support the show financially, go visit patreon.com slash texaspodcast where you too can become a Come and Take It Texas Ranger. We hope you'll join us next time and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.